And before we read, uh, let's go to God in prayer. Heavenly Father, you are a holy and great God. And uh, we give you praise this morning. We thank you most of all for your son, Jesus Christ, who died for our sins. And we ask that you would just uh, empower Pastor Adam this morning with your Holy Spirit. Um, Give him clarity of thought and help him to preach your word uh, boldly and accurately uh, in spirit and in truth. God, we want to be changed as we leave these doors this morning. And we pray that uh, you would use Adam to teach, to teach us uh, more of who you are and that you would increase our love for you. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Psalm 97. The Lord reigns. Let the earth rejoice. Let the many coastlands be glad. Clouds and thick darkness are all around him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. Fire goes before him and burns up his adversaries all around. His lightnings light up the world. The earth sees and trembles. The mountains melt like wax before the Lord, before the Lord of all the earth. The heavens proclaim his righteousness, and all the people see his glory. All worshipers of images are put to shame who make their boast in worthless idols. Worship him, all you gods. Zion hears and is glad, and the daughters of Judah rejoice because of your judgments, O Lord. For you, O Lord, are the most high over all the earth. You are exalted far above all gods. O you who love the Lord, hate evil. He preserves the lives of his saints. He delivers them from the hand of the wicked. Light is sown for the righteous and joy for the upright in heart. Rejoice in the Lord, O you righteous, and give thanks to his holy name. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. want to welcome the first through sixth graders among us here again today. During the summer, we give our Sunday school teachers a break, uh, but the purpose of doing that is not just to give our Sunday school teachers a break, but also that our kids are being raised in an environment where they're actually going to church so that when they graduate from high school, it's not the first time that they've ever been to church before. And so during summer, uh, our kids are with us and we try and simplify things a little bit for them. So if you are First through sixth grade, we're glad to see you here today. I am going to take a one-week break from Exodus, if that's all right. You know when we go through... (laughs) When we go through these long series, I just kind of need a break from time to time. So we're taking a one-week break from from Exodus. If you guys all need to leave and go down to Auburn Grace, that's fine. I'm sure he'll... (laughs) <laughs> but we're just going to take a one-week break. It's just kind of like a, kind of a like a, okay. We're, and so we'll jump back into, we'll do Amalekites and Moses with his hands up and all that next week. But this week, this week I would like to, uh, you know, and normally at Cornerstone, we go verse by verse through an entire book. This morning I want to just do a topical message here on what makes a good relationship. What makes a good friendship? All right, and I'm going to toss out a few ideas here. Uh, Pastor Mike isn't here today. He's in Hawaii, and he keeps sending me emails showing me pictures of his children swimming with turtles, thinking that I'm enjoying watching these <laughs> pictures, and I am not. I'm struggling with a couple of the Ten Commandments every time I get those emails. But uh, anyhow, 
there's a good there's a good big delete button on my email so anyhow he's not here but he is a really good friend of mine it took a, it took Mike and I a couple of years to figure out how to be friends some of you got to watch that up close but we all of a sudden were on the same staff together real strong personalities and we had a lot of Uh, intense issues that we had to deal with and intense in the sense that they don't have real simple solutions. You know, if you're not close friends with somebody, you can solve an easy problem with them. Uh, But a tough problem is hard. When there's not an easy solution, then it kind of brings out the the best and the most quirky aspects of your personality. So it took us a while to figure out how to work together, but eventually we got to know each other. And over the last couple of years, we've been really close. I'd consider him to be one of my closest friends. Um, we influence each other, we listen to each other, and we laugh together. We kind of share that gallows humor that we wouldn't be able to publish about some of the stuff that goes on. Like, you'll never believe I'm laughing about this, but you'll never believe what so-and-so said. And, and that's just a good, we have a good interaction. But good relationships like that don't come easy. They take work. And what I'd like to do this morning is show a few different things that the Bible tells us that we need to do when we're working on a relationship. And I'm not saying that I have it all together or that, or that Mike and I have it all together uh, or that our relationship even is perfect. Um, but the Bible is very clear about what we need to do in order to make quality relationships. And so I'm going to raise a few of those issues here this morning. And the first thing is to find Bible anchors. And you've heard me talk about this before, to find Bible anchors. And kids, you know, what a, you know what an anchor is, right? If you want to draw a picture of an anchor this morning, a boat that's been anchored, I'd love to see that afterward. But an anchor is a big piece of iron or something like this that they toss overboard over a boat, and it goes to the bottom, and it grabs onto stuff down there so that the boat doesn't drift around. So if you're in a boat and you want to fall asleep overnight or something like that, and you don't have to be at the wheel, you toss an anchor down so that you stay where you're supposed to be. And the Bible works like that in our hearts. The Bible is like an anchor for our hearts. Our hearts tend to drift, drift away from the truth. It's because we're sinners and it's because we don't have unlimited energy and we don't have unlimited knowledge about different things. And so our hearts tend to drift away from the truth of Scripture. We drift uh, into our fears and we drift into our irritations and our weird selfish habits and stuff that hurt relationships, but the Bible works like an anchor. So what we need to do is figure out those places in our hearts where we tend to drift, and we all do it very uniquely. I'll drift in one kind of direction, you might drift in another direction, and it has to do with the kind of personalities we have and our family of origin and all kinds of different complex things, but that doesn't really matter all that much. What matters is our ability to have a certain amount of self-awareness, honesty, about where I tend to drift in relationships. And then to find the scripture passages that deal with those. Because the Bible is living and active. It is an awesome power and it helps us to do what we need to do in times where we don't really want to do that. Psalm 119 verse 114, that's a mouthful, uh, says, You are my hiding place and my shield. I hope in your word. And verse 160 says, Every one of your righteous rules endures forever. You see, this Bible is filled with absolute truth and with incredible help. This is the greatest power on earth. These words here in this book are stronger than nuclear bombs, stronger than black holes or anything like that. These are, this is an incredible power. 
And so to bring this power into our hearts, into our relationships, is a very important thing for us to do. So we have to have self-awareness, understand where we struggle, where we tend to drift, and find those anchor passages. So for me, one of my anchor passages is Colossians chapter 3. And it's pretty much every word of Colossians chapter 3. And I would recommend it to you as well, because it's a fairly generic passage about getting along with people. Uh, But I'll whip that out usually around Christmas time and stuff like that when I, need, uh, when I need some help. So Colossians 3, let me just give you two verses here from Colossians 3, and I'll show you like how much there is. This is just two verses out of a whole chapter. It says, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you. So you must also forgive. Now that's just two words. And I mean, two verses, and you could see how you could spend a lot of time thinking about just individual words. You could spend a whole day, a whole week thinking about what a compassionate heart is, or what does it mean if I, if I'm, if the Bible's telling me to be kind, what would that look like? And you could spend a lot of time thinking creatively about what that would look like. Humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another, and then this incredible kind of forgiveness. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. 1 Corinthians 13 is another really good one for relationships. Going word by word through that and thinking about what each word means and thinking about how it applies in our relationship, getting creative and really serious about that. So we need to understand our hearts, where we tend to drift, and find the Bible passages that bring us back. And not just find those passages, but actually do what those passages say. And that's very important. Uh, Some people know the gospel. They may have been to church or they've read a tract or they've heard about the gospel. They've heard that Jesus Christ has died for their sins and that God loves you and that you are a sinner. But God has provided the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ for you so that you can be forgiven and reconciled to God and live forever reconciled to God. Many people know that message and yet still reject it. They have not yet come to a point of repenting for their sins. Now, that's one thing, a rejection of the gospel. But there's another kind of gospel rejection. That's the person who has technically repented for their sins and gotten off to a start in their relationship with the Lord, but have consistently refused to actually do the implications of the gospel in relationships. For example, this passage here that I just read said, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Now, a lot of people may hear that message and walk away from the sermon this morning and decide to still bear a grudge against so uh, against someone and not forgive that person. Uh, You know, Matthew chapter 7, Jesus talks about the kind of person who has heard the scripture and yet just keeps refusing to do what it says, feeling like, well, I must have an exception clause. I know what the Bible says, but I have an exception clause because my situation is particularly hard. Except listen to what the Bible says here in Matthew chapter 7. Jesus said, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who has built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against the house and it fell and great was the fall of it. 
So both of these builders and both of these scenarios face storms. They face trouble. They face all these winds and all these all kinds of things. And we all face that. So we all get into trouble. We're all going to face trouble. The, the question is, are you going to be a Bible person in the midst of that trouble? Are you actually going to not just hear the words of Jesus, but do what Jesus tells you to do in those difficult situations? If not, there is a warning here in verse 27, and great was the fall of it. So the first thing here is to find Bible anchors. As, as we're thinking about what makes a good relationship, find, good, find Bible anchors. And uh, I've given you a couple of my favorites, but you have a unique heart. And so what are your anchors? What are the areas where you tend to drift away from Scripture, where you start doing stupid things in relationships and making excuses for it? Be aware of where those issues are and find the Scripture that deals with those particular issues and then use those like anchors. Read those passages in order to pound the heart and soften the heart into alignment with God. The second thing here that I'd like to do, second tip, is to talk about the ungrateful servant in Matthew 18. So the first one here is to find Bible anchors. The second one is don't be the ungrateful servant. Don't be the ungrateful servant. And you know this story from Matthew chapter 18. The whole chapter is such an important chapter of the Bible. It's so filled with stuff. You'll be shocked if you look at Matthew 18. You can't believe how many memorable things are in that one chapter. But here we are with just about a paragraph of Matthew 18 or maybe two paragraphs in your Bible. Peter came up and said to Jesus, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? And of course, Peter is thinking that's a lot, right? That's a lot of times. I mean, he had already heard the Sermon on the Mount, so he's thinking, okay, turn the other cheek. I'll do that about seven times. And that's impressive. You know, you get smacked in the face and you get up again and you set yourself in another situation where you might get smacked in the face again. So turn the other cheek. And so he's thinking seven is a lot. And it's the number of completeness biblically. So he's thinking, I'm on, I must be on good terms here. Jesus is going to like this. And Jesus said to him, I did not say to you seven times, but 77 times, or some of your translations say 70 times seven. Therefore, verse 23, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. This is an amazing, amazing story here. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents, which is a totally ridiculous amount of money, a huge amount of money. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, totally small, tiny amount of money, owed him a hundred denarii and seizing him, he began to choke him saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him. Sounds familiar. Have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed And they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should you not have mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. 
so also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Now, this is a brilliant parable because it's very simple and it's also ironic, and we love irony. Ironic stories are fun for us to read. Uh, We see this man having been forgiven a massive debt, and he looks like an idiot when he goes to his fellow servant and doesn't forgive him for a real small debt. He looks like an idiot, and so we like reading stories like this because it's obvious, it's simple, and it makes a lot of sense to us. It's a brilliant parable, but here's the question. Do we understand and apply the implications of this parable in our lives? Do we realize that we also look like idiots when we, for, when we refuse to forgive people? God has forgiven our huge, massive, stinking sins, and we can't get over the fact that somebody stepped on my toes? We, we look kind of silly. And that little parable is a tragedy And I mean that in the literary form. Tragedy is a literary form where a protagonist faces a dilemma, some kind of challenge, and he makes a wrong choice. He makes a wrong moral choice in the midst of a dilemma, and then he faces the horrible consequences for his wrong choice. So there are big tragedies in the Bible. Adam and Eve would be the first one, and then you've got Samson, and you've got uh, Macbeth. Uh, Okay, Macbeth isn't in the Bible. I don't know where that came from. I meant to say Saul, and I said Macbeth, but Macbeth is also a tragedy, so. I. King Lear, King Saul, both of them are tragedies. I don't know where that came from, but so we're familiar with tragedies. Now, as a reader, we're supposed to have a certain response to a tragedy, when, when we watch a tragedy, when you watch a Shakespeare play, or when you read the story of Saul and you watch his life just completely dismantle, it's a tragedy. And what we're supposed to do when we're reading a tragedy is we're supposed to recoil from it, and we're supposed to say, I'm not going to do that. So a tragedy assumes that there's a difference between right and wrong, which is why our culture doesn't tell tragedies anymore. We tell depressing stories, but we don't tell tragedies because a tragedy intentionally teaches a moral lesson. You're supposed to walk away from it and say, I'm not going to do that because that's the wrong way to respond in a dilemma. Leland Riken, uh, one of the uh, literature profs, I'm not sure if he's still literature prof at Wheaton, but he wrote, part of the power of tragedy is its ability to express the dangerousness of life, the ease with which people make the wrong choice. Now, the ungrateful servant in Matthew 18 makes a tragic choice. The tragedy of a tragedy is the choice that the protagonist makes in the midst of the dilemma. And the ungrateful servant in Matthew 18 makes a tragic choice. He faces a dilemma. Somebody owes him money. That's frustrating. So he's got a dilemma. What's he going to do under pressure? And so we watch his wrong choice, and it's so obviously a wrong choice because we heard the setup to the story. So obviously a wrong choice, and so we're supposed to recoil and say, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to be a forgiving person because verse 35 says, forgive your brother from your heart. It emphasizes mercy twice, and it says, forgive your brother from your heart. So the question is, will you actually do that? Will you do that? This scenario This ungrateful servant story, it demands forgiveness. As a reader, you're reading this story. It's a parable, 
and you're reading it and you know that it cries out for, that's the irony of it. You know this, reading reading the story, it demands forgiveness. Not because forgiveness is fair, but because that's the context. Forgiveness is almost never fair. Forgiveness is not fair. But the story demands forgiveness not because it's fair, but because of the context. And the context is the master, verse 27, forgave him the debt. That's the story's setup. In a different story, you might say, well, that fellow servant owes him money and doesn't pay it, and so the legal system demands that he be thrown into jail. And so, and so that would be a very normal and reasonable thing to do. But this story doesn't allow that because of the setup. The dominating context is what the master did first. He forgave a massive debt. That's the dominating context, and that is the dominating context of our lives also. There is no sin against you or against me that does not demand forgiveness because we all live in a post-cross gospel context. That's the beginning of all of our spiritual stories. And so every decision that we make is inside that same story, inside that gospel context. Now, relationships deteriorate when people don't do this, when people are condescending and do the kind of kind of an attitude when people are defensive looking down on people oversensitive look we are all fellow servants that's the thing there's a master in this story and then there are two fellow servants we are all the fellow servants in this story we have all been forgiven much and when that dominating context rules our hearts then we are free to give mercy to all kinds of people for all kinds of stupid things they do and so living as a grateful servant instead of an ungrateful servant is an important thing for relationships. So those are two Bible tips so far. Third one here, and I'll spend most of the time on this, is to fight for friendship. Fight for friendship. See, fighting is actually a good thing. Fighting is a good thing. You read the song of Roland or something like that, and you know, you watch Braveheart or something, you know, like, Fighting is a good thing, but here's what makes fighting good. You got to fight for the right thing. If, if we're fighting for something important, then that fighting is good. Our problem is that we tend to make the wrong things important. And so we fight for the wrong things. Now, friendship, especially in church and especially in family, is worth fighting for. And it's interesting to think about that in the middle of an argument. When the blood pressure's high, when people aren't understanding each other, when the wheels have come off, when you're in the tall grass, whatever your favorite metaphor is of relational dysfunction, it's interesting to think about this in the middle of that problem, that the relationship and that the friendship is worth fighting for. Now, the temptation when we're in those scenarios is to attack or to defend. But if the relationship is precious, if the friendship is precious, then we are going to approach our arguments differently. It's not that we have to be all sensitive and delicate, but our approach is going to be different because our goal is different, because we're fighting for the friendship. We still want to be clear. We want to articulate ourselves. We want to explain ourselves and so on. But I'm fighting for the relationship. I'm not fighting against the other person, not fighting for myself. I'm fighting for us. And that makes a big difference in how we approach it. See, close relationships and the closeness of it is very important to God. 
God designed church and family to be close. It's not just a formal, pragmatic social contract. And sometimes religious people can get into this idea of thinking that all the warm, fuzzy stuff is silly and we just need to be pragmatic and missional about stuff. But the Bible has a lot to say about just closeness and friendship in a relationship. Jesus spent years hanging out with with a small group of men and women as they traveled around the country. God tells us stories about people like Ruth in order to show us what his own love for us is like. Song of Songs, chapter 5, verse 16 She says, this is my beloved and this is my friend. See, the husband here is not just husband who has a job and he fulfills certain roles. He's my friend. That's what God intends for a close relationship. You see, friendships are affectionate. And that's going to look different between maybe a brother and sister relationship or a husband and wife, a husband and wife relationship. But affection is important for relationships. It's a way of saying, you know, I like you. I like being with you. That's important for a relationship. You remember a couple of months ago, we went through the epiphany at the end of Song of Songs where the wife says, seal me upon your heart, upon your arm. And that represents closeness. She doesn't want to just be a piece of his property. She wants to be near him. She wants to be written on him. She's talking about nearness and affection. Just a few verses earlier, she says, his left hand is under my head and his right hand embraces me. If we do not work on affection, see, what I'm, what I'm arguing for is that friendships are worth fighting for. And we have got to work toward being and expressing affection in our relationships. And if we don't work on affection, then relationships can be nothing but just a pragmatic social contract. You do these jobs around the house, I do these jobs in the church, or whatever it may be, and we'll keep the machine going, we'll keep the organization going. But relationships get much more better and enjoyable when people are working on expressing affection. Little gifts, hospitality, thoughtfulness, whatever it may be, fighting for affection, moving toward each other rather than away from each other. Friendship also includes a lot of chatting. And I'm using the word chatting on purpose. I'm not saying talking, because we talk to, like, the person that takes our order at Burger King. We even talk to Siri, right? But a relationship, a relationship is chatting. A relationship, a friendship includes chatting. Um, Chatting is when we set aside all of the work. We set aside all of the important subjects, and we just laugh at a YouTube video together or or people watch, or something like this. That's chatting, and that's something that friends do, and we've got to work at that. Some people are easy to be friends with, and so we just naturally do those things. But especially in close relationships, those parts of the relationships die unless we work on them. So it's important for us to work on our affection and on our chatting and also on our study. Friendships include a lot of study. You remember Jane Goodall studying chimpanzees. She spent years observing chimpanzee behavior, and she saw emotions and personalities that nobody had ever seen before. Scientists didn't know that animals could have emotions. This was one of the differences that people thought uh, existed between humans and animals is that uh, animals didn't uh, have emotions. And yet here's Jane Goodall, and she plops herself down in the middle of uh, uh, Tanzania, and she actually gave the chimps names, and she saw different personalities, and she got to know them. 
and they just seemed to scientists kind of like stupid animals, but they turned out to be wonderfully complex. Nobody had done that before because she paid careful attention. She learned a lot of things. And you know, a wife is a lot like Jane Goodall. Have you ever thought about that? A wife can be a lot like Jane Goodall, living in the midst of chimpanzees, studying, <laughs> studying that kind of behavior. <laughs> Friendship requires study. What is this person really like? Not the fake person that I assume, but really like what makes her tick? Why does he do this and that very predictably in these scenarios? What does she like to do for fun? All those kinds of things are part of study, and that's important for a friendship. And friendships also include spiritual help, and this is a high bar. But friendships include a lot of spiritual help. You know, our biggest struggles are spiritual. God created our emotions or our affections to be used most intensely in religion. So the most intense joy that's possible for a human being is in the context of spirituality. And the same thing is true with hope or with fear. All of these things are most intensely experienced in the spiritual realm. Now, sometimes friends have a hard time talking about these things together because they're sensitive issues. This is the fine china inside our hearts. And and so good friends are careful not to pry or criticize or nag about these kinds of issues, but they come alongside. Galatians chapter 6 says, Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Let me read that again because those verses go together. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. The key there is humility. If anyone thinks he's something and he's nothing, it's humility. When you have two humble people that come alongside each other, it makes it possible for each one to bear each other's burdens. Calvin Miller said, Tripping is embarrassing, but I have learned that where we stumble is the place we dig for gold. Where we trip is where the treasure lies. You know, a good friend is somebody that we can trip around and we can laugh about it together and we can learn together. So friendship doesn't just happen. We're all in different relationships, but that doesn't mean that we're actually friends, okay? You have a formal relationship with somebody. It doesn't mean that you actually like each other. And what I'm arguing here is that the Bible makes a case for relationships being friendly, being affectionate, that there's chatting, that there's a certain study that needs to happen and that there's spiritual help that happens. And what we call all of that is love. We call that love, friendship, and the kind of love that happens in a good biblical friendship protects us from all kinds of trouble. First Peter 4 says, above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. He goes on and says, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. So friendship, we've talked about a few things this morning, talked about Bible anchors, really 
being honest with ourselves, having some self-reflection, and really doing what the Bible says in those particular areas. We've talked about the parable of the ungrateful servant, really living in a context of grace, really living like the story starts with the cross, and all the things we do with each other is post-cross context. We've also talked about moving toward each other in friendship. It's not, we're just not going to drift toward a great relationship. That doesn't happen. You don't drift toward intimacy. It's something that has got to be moved toward. We don't settle for just pragmatic relationships with each other, but we really love each other by constantly moving toward each other. And there's one more thing that I want to do this morning here, and, then that, and, that, is, and that is to say we, in relationships, we've got to pray to move mountains. Pray to move mountains. The Bible tells us to pray all the time, and there's a bunch of verses. I'm just going to do two here. Romans 12, 12, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. That's a good one for the refrigerator, Romans 12, 12. Another one, Colossians 4, verse 2, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. And lots of cross-references there if you want to look that up on your computer or in a cross-reference system or something like that. The Bible tells us to pray all the time. Now, there's a very interesting parable in Luke chapter 18. So earlier we were doing Mark 18, but now I want to tell you a parable here to close from Luke 18. And Jesus told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. Because, see, that's what happens in our prayers. We toss out a prayer in regard to some relationship stuff, and it doesn't happen, and so we lose heart. And so what he says here is he's telling them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. So Luke 18, he he says, In a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, Give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge says, and will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give them justice speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? That's a weird story. That's a weird story because God is comparing himself to this unrighteous judge who just doesn't even care about this widow and she's beating and the only reason that he decides to go ahead and allow the request is because he, she's basically annoying him. And, and, and God comes back, Jesus comes back to that and says, look, you're the elect and you're talking to a righteous judge. So you are completely beloved talking to a righteous judge. Will he not act? I mean, if this unrighteous judge acts, won't God act? Except the problem is here that we're used to putting in certain requests and expecting them to be immediately filled. Like if I've got my iPhone and I want a certain app, I click on a button, and sometimes there's an annoying thing where I have to click on three or four more buttons, and then the app comes onto my phone, and that's it. I make a request, and it happens. But that's not what happens with prayer. That's not how prayer works. And so the emphasis of this passage is about persistence. Now, why does God do that? Why isn't it that we can just pray a quick little prayer, say, hey, God, could you take care of, you know, hunger in in Africa? That'd be great if you could fix that. And he just says, oh, sure. And it's done. But that's not how prayer works. That's not how prayer works. 
Plato believed that the spiritual world of ideas was superior to the material world. And in our culture, we actually believe, people in our culture believe that the material world is more important than the immaterial world. If you can't prove it with the scientific method, then it's silly ghost story type stuff. But the Bible is right in between both of those and says that the spiritual world is just as important as the material world. Both of these things are important. Now, if that's true, prayer interacts in the immaterial spiritual world. We're talking to God. Now, does that actually change things? Is the spiritual world substantive? Is there something actually out there that is impacted by this very spiritual act of praying? So you might say, well, of course, you know, God hears my prayer. And so it goes almost like a telephone call through some kind of mysterious, almost immaterial process off to a foreign land, but it's still kind of in a spiritual realm. But I don't think that's how God describes prayer either. God describes prayer as work. He actually talks about it as being capable of moving mountains. And so it's equal to or in the same sort of realm as digging dirt. So let's say that you've got a project in your backyard. Do you just go out there and say, be done project, and then the, the <laughs> shed is made? Or, you know, you have the experience, oh, this will just take an hour. And then you go out there and four days later, you're still working because it's work. It's work. It's moving things around. It's shoving around rocks and it's getting rid of this and it's pulling and yanking and it's planting and it's digging and it's sweating. And that's a lot what prayer is like. Prayer is a lot like that. It's not just like putting in a little thing in our phone and boom, it comes. And if it doesn't come, we think, well, great apple in the sky doesn't want to give me that. So, okay, I won't ask again. (laughs) That's not what prayer is. And yet we treat prayer like that. I've prayed for this for, you know, 17 times and it hasn't happened so oh well i guess but you know some projects take more work and i don't know why that is i don't know why god interacts with us in that way but he encourages to encourages us to pray he he tells us to pray with persistence prayer deals with god in the spiritual realm and the prayer itself isn't just making a request of god it is making a request of god but it isn't just making a request of god but the prayer is also an answer to its own prayer because by praying we're actually moving things around we're actually doing spiritual work sometimes god says no and we have to be all right with that but it's not a digital yes and no and if we approach our prayer in a different way if we think you know what? I'm praying for something that is very biblical. God wants to see peace in this particular relationship. And I've prayed for that four times a day for seven years, and it still hasn't happened. Well, I would say time to go to eight times a year and time to have a strong confidence and bang on that door and just keep saying, I know that this is a godly thing to pray for. So here I am again, and I'm not being offensive. I'm just bringing this request again. Here I am again, and I'm, I've got a big project here that's taking a lot of prayer work. And I would say that prayer is a crucial component to having a good relationship. So we're talking about a lot of different things here this morning, and originally this was a 12-point sermon because relationships usually don't do very well with just three or four points, but this is all that we have time for today. What makes a good relationship? We've talked about finding Bible anchors. We've talked about not being the ungrateful servant. We've talked about fighting for friendship. And finally, 
prayer, prayer to move mountains kind of prayer, confidence in prayer, confidence that there is a loving God on the other end of this prayer and that the prayer is moving things in the spiritual and material realm. So let me close with this from 1 Timothy 1.5. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and sincere faith. So may God bless all of us with those kinds of relationships. Let me close in prayer. Lord God in heaven, as I preach this morning, I'm looking out onto many different relationships that... um, that may not be working very well in our congregation. And uh, you know where those relationships are. And God, I pray that you would bring the power of your word. Pray that you would bring your Holy Spirit into those places to bring healing and refreshment. I pray that your Holy Spirit would empower each one of us to really do what your word says, to really believe that what you've asked us to do is important and that it brings glory to you, and that it has some effect for fruitfulness. And so we ask for your help. We ask for your blessing. We ask for your healing. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.